0: Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat shalom. We are in a long, uh, uh, verse-by-verse, exegetical series on the entire Gospel of Mark. Today is part six, so we've, we've only just begun, and we're just barely into chapter two, we're going to be looking today uh, at Yeshua and the Shabbat. So turn with me uh, with, to Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. Mark 2, 23, and we're going to go through Mark 3, verse 6. So Mark 2, verse 23. And it says, On, on Shabbat, Yeshua was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, Why are they doing what's unlawful on Shabbat? He answered, "Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need in the days of Abiathar, the high priest? He entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread. We saw that today with the overhead, the show bread, which is which is unlawful, which is lawful only for the Kohanim, only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them." The Shabbat was made for man, not man for the Shabbat. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Shabbat. Another time, Yeshua went into the synagogue. A man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Yeshua. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal this man on Shabbat. Yeshua said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everybody. Then Yeshua asked them, he asked them, which is lawful on Shabbat, to do good or to do evil, uh, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely healed and restored. And the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Yeshua. Now if you were here last week, when we looked at the healing of the paralytic, we saw that Yeshua claimed to be able to forgive sins, which the religious leaders call blasphemy. However, this week, Yeshua goes even further if that's possible. He makes a claim in this passage that is so over the top, so out of all categories, so outrageous that the religious leaders team up with their arch enemies, the Herodians, to plot to kill Yeshua. Yeshua. Because what Yeshua says in this passage is that He is not here to reform religion. He's here to end religion. And to replace it with Himself. On the overhead. In this passage, we're going to see two, just two things today. Number one, the futility of religion. And number three, and number two, uh, the finality of Yeshua. Let's start with, the, and we can start with the second of these two incidents, which tells us something about the futility of religion. Uh, Yeshua is in the synagogue, at the Beda Knesset, uh, on Shabbat. In comes a man with, with a shriveled hand. The religious leaders, they're looking for a way to, to accuse Yeshua of breaking the Torah, and especially of breaking the Shabbat. And Yeshua gets angry at them, and he heals the man with a shriveled hand. Now, the Torah commands uh, that you rest from your work on Shabbat. And this was a wonderful concept, uh, to be able to cease from your labors one day in seven uh, and focus on the Lord. It was meant to be a delight. Yet the religious leaders had saddled this law with so many additions and regulations and restrictions that it became a tremendous yoke and burden. In fact, the rabbis came up with 39 different categories of prohibited work on Shabbat, and each category had hundreds and thousands of rules, each of these 39 categories. Indeed, the the, the Talmudic regulations on Shabbat are the largest in the entire Talmud. Uh, They make up four huge volumes just on the the Shabbat laws, over 10,000 actually. These were rabbinic editions, so-called fences around the law, So, for example, it was uh, deemed a sin to untie a knot on Shabbat. So if you had a knot in your sandal laces, uh, you were not allowed to untie the knot until the Shabbat was over. If you tore a garment, you were allowed to sew one stitch, uh, but not two. Uh, And we see these rules being played out even today. uh, For example, you're not allowed to tear toilet paper on Shabbat. Uh, You've got to unscrew the light bulb in your refrigerator before Shabbat, because unless you open the refrigerator door, the light comes on. And so if you forget to do so, you can't open your refrigerator in the entire Shabbat. (laughs) Now, other categories of rabbinically prescribed work on Shabbat included reaping, threshing, uh, winnowing, and harvesting. And in this first passage, in the first passage, the Pharisees claimed that picking grain with your hands and eating it on the Shabbat was a violation of these four rules. And in the second passage, the man with a shriveled hand, they claimed that healing on Shabbat was a prohibited form of work to heal somebody. Now, here's why Yeshua is so angry on the overhead. What is Shabbat all about? It's about restoring the diminished. It's about replenishing the drained. It's about repairing that which is broken. So for Yeshua to heal the man's shriveled hand was to do exactly what the Shabbat was all about. And yet... The religious leaders were so consumed and obsessed with all these additional Shabbat regulations that they had made that they did not want Yeshua to to heal him on the overhead. So they missed the forest for the trees. Their hearts were as shriveled as the man's hand. In Mark 3 verse 4, we read this. Then Yeshua asked them, is it lawful on Shabbat to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. Yeshua, was not, he was not only challenging the Pharisees' man-made additions to God's law here, he was also speaking with irony when he asked them, is it law for to, to, to do good or to kill, uh, to save life or kill, because he knew their minds and their hearts. They were trying to find accusations against Yeshua uh, and, 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 and uh, trying to kill him. Uh, and they were actually building a prohibited fire on Shabbat, if you will, by kindling anger and hatred in their hearts against him. By actively plotting on the very Shabbat day to kill him. So while Yeshua was doing good on Shabbat uh, by healing, they were doing evil by plotting to kill. Could there be any more violation of Shabbat than that? Than to plot to kill Yeshua, the Lord of the Shabbat, on the Shabbat day. Mark 3 verse 5 then tells us, He looked at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. The religious leaders provoked Yeshua to anger. The Greek word used here is not the word for mere annoyance uh, or even even righteous indignation. It's the word, it's the Greek word for fury. Yeshua was outraged but the religious leaders cared more for their traditions than for the welfare of this suffering man. But his anger was also mixed with pain. Mark tells us Yeshua was grieved in his soul at the hardness of their hearts. In fact, the Bible warns all of us about grieving the Holy Spirit. If we harden our hearts, God will not strive with us forever. At some point, his patience ends and his judgment ensues. Until that time, the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to quicken and to convict our consciences, uh, to make us aware of our rebellion against the Lord, because we all have some degree of hardness and some degree of callousness in our heart. So ask yourself today, do I have a shield up in my life to keep God's truth from piercing and penetrating my heart? So I want to urge you, brothers and sisters, do not harden your hearts when you hear God's word. We must guard against reading a text like this today and simply say, oh, those hard-hearted Pharisees. I I would never be like that. (laughs) Rather, let's look to our own sin. Let's cry out to the Lord. Don't be angry with me. Don't let me grieve you or cause you to be furious at me. Help me not to harden my heart towards the sin in my own life. Help me to take out the log out of my own eye before I worry about the speck in my brother's eye. Show me where I need to change, where I need ears to hear and eyes to see. And a heart soft and open to embrace your holy conviction. So what was it that had blinded the religious leaders to the true meaning of the Shabbat? In a word, this is what blinded them. Religion. Look at Mark 2, verse 27. Yeshua says, Shabbat was made for man. Not man for Shabbat. Shabbat was a gift of God to his people. Uh, A gift to keep us from wearing out our bodies and our animals and our servants and our employees in our fields. However, in Yeshua's day, the rabbinic tradition had turned this gift into a burden. So in the overhead, Yeshua, in essence, he's saying there are two different spiritual paradigms. In one, the law is a burden. It enslaves you. In the other, the exact same law is a blessing. It's a gift. And it leads to flourishing. So here's two different people, Yeshua's saying. uh, They're both trying to obey God's law. Both trying to observe and keep the Shabbat. But in one case, their obedience is a burden. The law of God is a burden. Uh, they're enslaved to it. In the other case, it is a gift. On the overhead, Mark 2.27, man was not made for Shabbat. Shabbat was made for man. Yeshua talking here about two spiritual paradigms. And he's contrasting them on the overhead. He's contrasting them because they're radically different. And these two paradigms, the two of the paradigms of this, are the gospel of Yeshua and human religion. The gospel of Yeshua and human religion are two completely different paradigms. So, for example, most people in the world believe that if there is a God, you relate to him by being good. Uh, all religions are based on this principle. Although, of course, there's a million different variations uh, on that theme. Uh, so, for example, some religions I want, I'm going to call nationalistic. Uh, you connect to God by coming into our people group and taking upon yourself uh, the markers of this group. So an example of that would be uh, Orthodox Judaism. Other religions are, are spiritualistic. You reach God by, by working through certain transformations of your consciousness. Examples would be Buddhism, Hinduism. Other religions are, are formerly legalistic. Uh, there's a code of conduct. If you do it, God will bless you. Uh, an example would be Islam and to some extent Roman Catholicism. On the overhead. But they're all based on the same idea. Religion is based on the principle that if I obey, I'm accepted. Yeshua faith, messianic faith, is not only different from that, it's absolutely diametrically opposed to it. Completely opposed to it. So on the overhead. Because religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel, messianic faith, is, I'm fully accepted in Yeshua. And therefore, I obey. Uh, religion on the overhead again. Religion is I give God something, and then He owes me, because I'm a good person and I deserve His blessing. But the gospel is that God, through Yeshua, through Yeshua, He gives us a complete salvation, uh, which I which I receive from by sheer grace, and then I gladly and gratefully live for Him. Do you see how they're exactly the opposite? In religion, you're saved by being better than everybody else. Uh, by rising above the masses and living the good life, uh, the narrow path, performing well, you're saved by, by being better than others. But in Yeshua faith, you're saved only if you admit that you are no better than anybody else. When you admit that you're absolutely not better than anyone else, that you are a spiritual, moral failure. And you can only be saved by grace. And these are two absolutely different paradigms. Uh, Today in our passage, we're we're seeing one particular way of contrasting these two paradigms. Now, how does the law function? Here's two people. They both want to obey the law of God. Uh, They both want to obey the Ten Commandments. Uh, But God's law, the same law, functions in two totally different ways in these two paradigms. In religion, the purpose of obeying the law is to assure yourself that I'm okay with God. That's the purpose of the law. Uh, You're working very hard to do all these things to assure yourself that you are a good person. Uh, And therefore, God owes you to answer your prayers uh, and to bless you and to take you to heaven. And as a result, when you come to the law, what you're most concerned about in this paradigm is the detail. You want to know exactly what you have to do. Because you have to push all the right buttons in all the right ways. Because the purpose of the law is to assure yourself that you are a good person. And that you're doing everything exactly right. And so you don't focus on the broad purpose and intent and motivations and motives of the law, but rather your focus is on the minutia, Uh, uh, and and you add in all these extra sorts of additional details that aren't even there, so you can assure yourself that you're really obeying it. But in the gospel, the law of God has, has a completely different function. It's there to take you out of yourself. It's there to show you the kind of life of love that you want to live before the Lord. So the law is a way to show you how to love God, uh, how to love others, instead of being absorbed in yourself. Uh, And so the law of God here, it's it's depicting a particular kind of life. So you want to see the broad purpose of the law uh, and the motivations of the heart that are behind the law. That's why, for example, Yeshua says adultery includes lust. Because he's looking at the heart. Uh, uh, and murder includes hatred. The law ultimately wants to speak to your heart. It says you need a circumcised heart. So that's the, uh, that's the ultimate focus. Not a pharisaical obsession with outward external details. Uh, and the minutiae of, of Shabbat observance. Because you can otherwise very easily fool yourself into thinking... If I can scrupulously do all these outward rules, uh, then I'm right with God. Uh, Then I'm a good person. But the reality is that the law of God is is trying to sketch out a particular kind of life motivated by a new creation heart and spirit. In religion, obeying the law makes you feel better than everybody else because you're complying with all these details. But in the gospel, when you look at the law, you're humbled by it. You say, I could never live up to that. And yet God loves me in spite of my failures. And I'm going to do my best uh, to be like him, to resemble him, be conformed to the image of Yeshua, and to live the life of love that he wants me to live. So here's an illustration, a true illustration, a messianic rabbi friend of mine related to me. He just preached the drash on love your neighbor uh, as yourself. And he said this verse means that God wants you to meet the needs of other people, uh, with all the joy and eagerness and quickness and ingenuity and creativity and industry of which you meet your own needs. God says to love your neighbor as yourself is I want you to meet the needs of others with all the same intensity with which you meet your own needs. That's the standard. That's how I want, I want you to live your life. And so after the Shabbat service, this teenage girl came up to him and said, let me get this straight. I've just been in my high school's homecoming pageant uh, with my best friend uh, for the homecoming queen or something like that. I came in last. She won. My friend won. So you're trying to tell me that the Bible says that I should be as happy for her as I would have been for myself if I had won. I should be just as excited, just as happy, just as celebratory with her as if it had happened to me. And my Messianic rabbi friend, he said, exactly. That's exactly what I'm trying to get across. That's a great illustration. And she looked at him and she said, well, then Messianic Judaism is ridiculous. <laughs> Nobody lives can live like that. Who lives like that? So the rabbi, he sat her down and said, OK, let's talk about this. Love your neighbor as yourself, meaning the same way as you would love yourself. And she said, that is ridiculous. First of all, I want to know exactly who my neighbor is. Because it can't be everybody in the world. (laughs) That's ridiculous. I could never do that. I want to know who my neighbors are and how many square blocks around my house constitutes my neighborhood. (laughs) How much that the Bible covers. And second, I want to know exactly what you have to do. What are the things they have to do for my neighbor? She was a perfect little Pharisee. (laughs) But not a superior Pharisee, uh, uh, but an anxious Pharisee. (laughs) Not someone who felt better than others, someone who felt worse. And this was her normal, human, natural reaction to to this message of the gospel. Because she was not yet awash in the love and acceptance of Yeshua. The penny had not yet dropped for her. And in her mind, the purpose of the law was to assure herself that she was a good person. So that she could know that God needed to treat her as a good person, Uh, and so she'd have a right to think of herself as a good person, and therefore any law that was that broad in her mind, that was painting this this amazing life of love, she could not handle. She did not have the emotional security to handle it. She wanted to narrow down the law. She wanted to make it detailed. She wanted a to-do list. She wanted to nail it down to certain specific, outward, tangible steps so that she could then feel good about herself that she completed her to-do list. Do you see how radically different religion is from the gospel? And the text drives this point home even further today. Because not only is Yeshua angry in this text, someone else is angry as well. Look at Mark 3, verse 6. This is amazing. It says, then, in the overhead, Mark 3, verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Yeshua. This sums up one of the main themes of the New Testament. Who were the Herodians? They were the supporters of King Herod, the Herodian dynasty of of Herod the Great and his family members, many of whom also became king, like, like Herod Agrippa. They ruled under and they represented the Roman occupying power. So the Herodians, they were nominally Jewish leaders who represented the occupying power of Rome politically. And they also represented the Hellenizing culture of Greece socially. Because wherever Rome conquered, uh, they set up their puppet rulers and they brought with them the Greco-Roman culture. The Greek approach to sex and the body. The Greek approach to pluralism. The Greek approach to spirituality. So Rome would would bring with them these these pagan cultures to all their conquered territories, including Israel. But Israel felt assaulted by all these immoral, cosmopolitan, pluralistic, pagan values. So a resistance movement sprang up and called themselves the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a conservative reaction to this imposition of Greek culture. They started out as, as a reform movement. Uh, They said, we have to live according to the Bible. We have to erect all these fences, therefore, between us and the pagans. We must live very moral, very Torah-observant lives. So the Herodians, they were like the secular reform-assimilated Jews. And the Pharisees were like the religious or ultra-Orthodox Jews. And they hated each other. Just like today. (laughs) The Herodians accommodated the Roman uh, pagan practices... The Pharisees wanted to wipe out all vestiges of paganism and immorality and pluralism and Greco-Roman culture. But they both interestingly agreed on one thing. We have to get rid of Yeshua. They absolutely hate each other, but they team up to plot to kill Yeshua on the overhead. And this is one of the main themes of the Bible. The gospel is neither religion nor irreligion. It's neither moralism ...nor relativism. It's neither traditional moral values... ...or do whatever you, is good... ...you feel is good for you. It's neither. So for example, when Yeshua meets Nicodemus... ...this Pharisee, this religious leader... ...he says, you're lost, you've got to be born again. Uh, so here's someone, Nicodemus... You know, ...who's trying to live up to the Torah... ...live up to biblical values... ...and Yeshua says, you're lost. And then the very next chapter, he meets this woman at the well... ...she's had multiple husbands... ...she's not living with a guy who's not her husband... And Yeshua also likewise says to her, you're lost, you've got to be born again. On the overhead, I see there's basically two approaches to life. Moral conformity. I'm going to live a very, very good life. Or I'm going to call self-discovery. I decide what's right or wrong for me. On the overhead. Now, according to the Bible, these are both ways of being your own Savior and Lord. So Here's one person. He says, Bible shmeibel, (laughs) I decide what's right or wrong for me. I live my own way. Uh, That's someone trying to be his or her own savior. Self-discovery. Here's another person. He or she says, I'm going to obey everything in the Bible. I'm going to do everything in the Bible. This way, God has to take me to heaven. This person is also being their own savior as well. You're the savior. Uh, because you're being so good. So here, here's irreligion doing your own thing. And here's religion doing good to earn God's favor. The Herodians and the Pharisees, if you will. And Yeshua says they're both ultimately the same thing. They're both hostile to the message of Yeshua. They're both as far from the gospel of Yeshua as they can be. They're Both, appro- and begin, uh, both approaches lead to self-righteousness. Oh, yes, they do. Because the moralist says the good people are in, and the bad people are out, and of course, we're the good ones. And the secular self-discovery people say, we progressive open-minded people are in, and you judgmental bigots are out, and of course, we're the open-minded people. And among the secular, liberal, progressive people, there's an enormous amount of self-righteousness about (laughs) self-righteousness. Their attitude is, we are so much better than those people who think they're better than other people. (laughs) (laughs) secularism, yes, leads to as much superiority and self-righteousness as religion does. It leads to just as much exclusiveness and divisiveness and pride as sectarian religion on the overhead. But the gospel is radically different from both. The gospel does not say the good are in and the bad are out, nor that the open-minded are in and the judgmental are out. The gospel says the humble are in And the proud are out. The gospel says the people who know they're not better than anybody else are in. The people who think they're on the right side of the divide are out. On the overhead. Please understand this key distinctive. Religion is, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And this leads inevitably to self-righteousness, to spiritual deadness, To superiority, if you you think you're living up to your standards. Or to anxiety, if you realize you're not living up. So if you think you're living up, you feel better than everybody else. You're bold, but you're not humble. And if you're failing, uh, then you're humble, but you're not bold or confident. Religion leads to spiritual deadness. It leads to thin-skinnedness. You become critical and judgmental of others. Religion is, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I'm the overhead. But the gospel is, I am accepted through Yeshua. And therefore, I obey. Again, I'm the overhead. Please note, this is very, this is key right here. Note that the automatic natural default mode of the human heart is religion, not the gospel. Even if you today are a genuine believer, unless you are constantly reinforcing the gospel in both your own inner and outer life, the default mode of your human heart is always to revert back to religion. It's always back to, I obey and therefore I'm accepted. Because your heart is naturally uh, uh, on this sort of incline. So if you're automatically sliding back down into religion, unless you're constantly pursuing your way towards the gospel... And daily reminding yourself to live and to walk in the gospel. And if you do not do that, you're going to slide back into this unconscious autopilot mode of salvation by works and human effort. Because that's what your flesh naturally wants. That's why even as a believer, you're constantly feeling uh, inferior or superior to others. That's why you're always anxious and you're worried and you're fearful and you're mad at God when things don't go your way. Because all these reactions are contrary to the truth that I am a sinner saved by grace. Rather, these carnal reactions go with the theology of I am owed. I'm owed because I've lived a good life. Because the default mode of your heart is on this naturally downward incline uh, back to religion. Unless you're constantly reinforcing the gospel in your mind If you don't do that, you're going to be constantly sliding back into legalism and Phariseeism and a religious spirit. And the spiritual deadness and self-righteousness and judgmentalism and anxiety that goes with it. And that the rest of the world rightly hates about religion. Now, sadly, most non-believers mistakenly believe that Yeshua faith and religion are the same thing. But The two, rightly understood, could not be more opposite. So on the overhead, the first thing we see in this passage is the futility of religion. And the second thing we see here today is the finality of Yeshua. Now, how can Yeshua affect this this radical change? And in essence, how can he declare the end of religion? This brings us to what Yeshua says about the finality of himself. This is amazing. Look at Mark 2, verse 27. He said to them, the Shabbat was made for man, not man for the Shabbat. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Shabbat. So first Yeshua says, you do need Shabbat. He is not doing away with the Shabbat. And notice he does not say the Shabbat was made for Jews. And he doesn't even say Shabbat was made for my followers, the Messianic believers. He says Shabbat was made for all humanity. But at the same time, Yeshua comes down against all these excessive man-made regulations and legalism and additions that the Pharisees have added to the Shabbat, turning it from a delight and joy into a yoke and burden. Yeshua comes down hard against the religious, legalistic way in which the Shabbat laws had been misused and perverted and made null and void in many ways. So, because, for example, it was not uh, it was not against the Torah to pick grain with your hands, eat it on the Shabbat. This was a rabbinic fence that was added by the Pharisees. That's why, for example, in the example he gives of King David eating the showbread in the temple, he, said, he says, it's a classic Jewish Kovachomer argument, that much more so argument. He says, if David could break, actually break the Torah uh, and eat the temple showbread, that was breaking the Torah, but David was allowed to do it. Then how much more can my disciples break this mere rabbinic tradition about not picking grain and eating it on the Shabbat? But then the Pharisees might say, well, oh, how do you overturn our entire religious paradigm? You know, how dare you claim to have this authority? And the answer is Mark 2, 28. Yeshua says, so the Son of Man, which is what he calls himself, is Lord even of the Shabbat. Now, what did he just say? We need to see the magnitude of what he just said. First, he didn't say, uh, he didn't just say, I have the divine authority to change the Shabbat. Uh, uh, He he could have said that. He could have even said, I'm Lord over the Shabbat. No. Now, 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 by by the way, the word Shabbat means the deep rest, the deep peace. It's also almost a synonym for shalom. And Yeshua says, I am the Lord of rest. I'm the source of the deep rest that you need. I am the Shabbat. I'm coming to change how you accomplish that rest because I am the Shabbat. The one-day-a-week rest you get is just an image of the deep rest, the deep divine rest, the rest of God that I am the source of. So look at Matthew 11, 28. Yeshua says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am uh, uh, um, gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now when Yeshua says, I am I'm the Lord of the Shabbat. If you think about it, that is so over the top. Uh, his self-consciousness of who he is is so incredible. It bursts through all categories. It is totally off the map. So for example, the overhead. I want us to talk about the Lordness of him and the Shabbatness of him. <laughs> so first the lordness of Yeshua. Here's another example. Remember last week Yeshua said to the paralytic, uh, "I forgive all your sins." Yeshua was thereby claiming that all sins were ultimately against him. You could only forgive sins that are against you. So remember the example from last week, you know, if Dan punches Rusty in the nose, Robin can't forgive Dan. Only Rusty can. You could only forgive a sin that's against you. So when Yeshua forgives the paralytic all his sins, he's saying, all your sins are ultimately against me. Now this week he's saying, if they think that was wild, this week he's saying, I am Lord of the Shabbat. Over and over again, Yeshua shows that his own self-consciousness, his understanding of who he is, is just unprecedented. Yeshua understands that there, there is a God who is uncreated, who is beginningless, who is infinitely transcendent. Uh, Above all creation, um, who made this world, who keeps everything in the universe going with his pinky, with the word of his power. All the molecules and the stars and the solar systems are being held up by the power of God. And Yeshua says, that is who I am. I am the one who created the world in six days and rested on the Shabbat. I created the Shabbat, and therefore I am Lord of the Shabbat. And this claim to deity is on every page of the gospel, if you know how to read the works. Even Yeshua's offhanded comments emphasize this. So, for example, over in Luke 10, Yeshua was talking about his ability to cast out demons. And then he just casually mentions kind of this offhand remark, Luke 10, verse 18. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What? <laughs> Do you know what he just said? He said, oh, yeah, I remember back then, before the material universe was created, I saw Lucifer go bad. It was terrible. (laughs) I was around there. Yeah, I knew him. There's another place in Matthew, kind of almost his offhanded way. He says, I keep sending you prophets and sages. What? He doesn't say, I am one of the great prophets that, that God has sent. No. He says, I am the God who's been sending you all the prophets and sages. And to prove that's how he understood himself, every prophet, every religious teacher, every sage, every wise man who ever lived, when they wanted to speak about uh, the words of God, they would say, thus saith the Lord. Yeshua never said that. Not once. Rather, he says, verily, verily, I say unto you. Yeshua's self-consciousness of who he is is so off the map, so over the top, It's very clear that he's so absolutely saturated with the knowledge of who he is, his own deity, that even his offhanded comments, even his footnotes, even his sidebars, everything he says assumes that he is the uncreated, beginningless, transcendent, eternal creator and judge of the universe. Now what are you going to do about that? Do you know what this means? Because I constantly run into people who say, oh, yeah, I believe Yeshua was a great teacher. But I can't believe he's the divine son of God. Well, if you say that, that only shows you've never listened to any of his teachings. Because his teachings are based on his claim to deity. So, for example, like Yeshua was teaching today on Shabbat. Well, it's based on him being, on him being the Lord of the Shabbat. He says, I am the source of Shabbat. I'm the one who invented Shabbat. I'm the who created the world and rested on the seventh day. That's what he's saying. So if you say, I believe he's a great teacher, but I cannot accept he's the divine son of God. This means you've not actually ever read any of his teachings. Because his teachings are rooted in the claims of who he is. On the overhead. This means, as a great quote from N.T. Wright, he says this. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human. That the fire has become flesh. That life, capital L, has walked into our midst. Messianic faith either means that or it means nothing. It's the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it's a complete sham and nonsense. Most people, unable to cope with saying either of these things, are condemned to live in the shallow world in between. Bottom line, and anyone who makes the type of claims that Yeshua makes, you cannot like. Either he's a wicked person or a lunatic, and you should have nothing to do with him. Or he is who he says he is, and your whole life must revolve around him. And you want to throw everything at his feet and say, command me. Or do you live in that shallow, shadow world in between that N.T. Wright talks about? That he says that no one with integrity can live in. So, for example, do you pray to Yeshua sometimes? Occasionally. Maybe when you're in trouble or, or in need. and Otherwise, you're very busy and so you basically ignore him. Is that you? Either he can't hear you because he's not who he says he is. Or, or else, how dare you just check in with him Occasionally. On the overhead, you cannot with integrity just pray to Yeshua occasionally. Either he can't hear you because he's not who he says he is, or he must be the still point in your turning world. He must be a thing around which your entire life revolves. So on the overhead, we see the the lordness of Yeshua, and then finally we see the Shabbatness of him. When he says, I'm lord of the Shabbat, he says, I can give you rest. Rest. When the Bible calls you to rest, there are two levels. You know, the first level, you need a weekly physical and mental time off from work. But there's another level of rest, a deeper level of rest. After God created the world in Genesis 2, which says he then rested from his work. So so what does that mean? Well, does God get tired? No, God was not tired. Uh, So what does it mean uh, when it says he rested And the overhead? The answer is to rest is to be so satisfied with your work. So utterly satisfied with your work that you can now leave it alone. Because when God finished creating the world, what did he say? It is good. He rested. To rest means you are so satisfied with something that you can walk away from it. You can say, I can leave it alone. I can let it go. I am happy with it. Only when you can say, it is finished. I'm so happy. I'm so satisfied with it. It's finished. Can you truly find rest for your soul? One of my all-time favorite movies is Chariots of Fire. A true story about these two British Olympians who run in the 1924 Olympics. One of these British runners was Eric Liddell, a devout Scottish Christian. He refused to run on the Sabbath, which for him was Sunday. And so he lost out on a gold medal. The other runner was a secular Jew, Harold Abrams. Both runners trained very, very hard to win gold medals. But Harold Abrams was doing it out of a sense of a need to prove himself. In fact, he actually actually said, when the gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. He's trying to prove himself. But Eric Liddell ran for the glory of God. He ran to, to please the God who had already accepted him. On the overhead, he said to his sister, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. On the overhead. In other words, Harold Abrams was weary even when he rested. And Eric Liddell was rested even when he was fully exerting himself. Why? Because there is a work underneath our work. That we really need rest from. For most of us, unless God comes into our life, we're working and we're working and we're doing things to prove ourselves, to convince ourselves, to convince God, to convince others, to convince ourselves that we're good people. And that work is never over. We're 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 never over unless you are resting in the gospel, on the overhead. Because at the end of the creation week, the Lord said it is finished so he could rest. But on the cross, at the end of redemption... Yeshua said, it is finished, so that you and I, so that we could rest. Because when Yeshua said, it is finished, what was finished? The work underneath your work, Uh, the real weariness, the thing that really makes you weary, which is this need to prove yourself, because you're not satisfied with who you are, you're never satisfied, it's never good enough, you keep working. Yeshua says, I have completed that work. I've lived the life you should have lived. I died the death you deserved to die. And I paid the price that you could not pay. If you rest in my finished work, then you can know that God is satisfied with you. And you can be satisfied with life. And then you have this deep rest. The the REM rest, if you will, that your soul needs. You know, you can sleep all night. But if you don't get that REM, rapid eye movement rest... You still wake up exhausted. You can take all the best vacations in the world, but if you don't have that deep REM rest of the soul, resting on what Yeshua did for you on the cross, you will never truly have God's Shabbat rest. Because on the cross, Yeshua experienced the restlessness of separation from the Father so that you could have the deep rest of knowing that He loves you and that your sins have been paid for. And as a result, Yeshua said, it is finished. And therefore, you can rest in his finished work. And that means you can rest indeed in the true Shabbat rest of God. That is what he offers you. Let me close with this. The early believers in Rome, they had pagan neighbors. Can you imagine this kind of conversation happening? A neighbor comes up to one of the believers and says, Oh, I hear you're one of those Messianic Yeshua followers. That's great. I love religion. Oh, the pageantry, oh, that's wonderful. Where do you Yeshua followers go to your temple? Where's your temple? And the Messianic believer says, we have no temple. Yeshua is our temple. And the neighbor says, you have no temple? Where do your priests operate? And the believer says, we don't have any priests. Yeshua is our priest. He's our great high priest. We no longer need human priests to come before God. We no longer need uh, mediators. He is our mediator. No temple, no priests. Where do you make your sacrifices? The things that make you acceptable to your God. And the Messianic believer says Yeshua is our sacrifice. Our once for all final sacrifice. Our final atonement. And so finally this pagan neighbor, very confused, says no temple, no priests, no sacrifices. What kind of religion is this? And the Yeshua follower says, It's no kind of religion at all. Because because God did not give us a religion, He gave us a person. We don't need a system of works and rituals to come into God's presence. Instead, He came to us and died for us. He came into our midst. And so, so now we don't have a religion, we have a person. Come to him today. Surrender to him. Enter into his Shabbat rest. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and pray. i ask Greg to come on up, please. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Father, we thank you today for showing us in this passage the what I'm calling the futility of religion, that man's not made for Shabbat, but Shabbat is made for man. Thank you for showing us that our natural tendency that the default mode of our heart is either a religion of self effort and trying to be good and do our own by our own lights and our own self-salvation or it's a religion where we just do our own thing and create our own morals uh, and we become our own God. Lord, thank you for showing us that both these paradigms, both religion and irreligion are contrary to the gospel. Totally contrary because the gospel is not that I obey and therefore you accept me. that I repent and I trust in you Yeshua I take up my cross and I follow you and then out of that acceptance and a new creation heart I then joyfully obey and live for you so the gospel isn't that the good are in and the bad are out or the open minded are in and the judgmental are out but the humble are in and the proud are out help us to live in this humility Lord Help us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Yeshua, you are Lord of the Shabbat. You are Lord of the universe who created the Shabbat. You created the heavens and the earth and you rested the seventh day. And you instituted the Shabbat. And you now give us this day of rest for our souls. And and delight for our spirits. As a picture of the final Shabbat rest of your kingdom, Yeshua. Because you said, it is finished on the cross. Now we can rest in you and we can delight in your Shabbat. We pray this all in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat.